I bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every great path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Last week, we continued to look at what the apostles did that produced the kind of disciples in such multiplying dimensions. We noted that they preached only one message. Unlike today, where we have so many messages, they had only one message, and Jesus Christ and Him crucified was their message. It didn't change, it didn't shift, it didn't tilt. They continued on that message. They had only one inspiration. The inspiration was the Holy Spirit in their preaching. They were not inspired by money. They were not inspired by the crowd. They were not inspired by fame. They were not inspired by any of those things. Their inspiration was from the Holy Spirit and it came from within them and they were able to preach the Lord Jesus Christ even when it meant standing before Caesar in Rome. Paul preached Christ. They had only one goal. Their goal was not to be rich. Their goal was not to be famous. Their goal was souls of men and women to take them out from hell and bring them into the kingdom of God. This one message that they proclaimed, this message of the Lord Jesus Christ, produced souls that were hungry for Christ. It produced enduring faith in the face of persecution in these souls. It wrought miracles, signs, and wonders accompanying this one message. This message was based on the word of God and nothing else. We saw that that message, the word of God they had, was the Old Testament. Today, thank God for the writings of these apostles. We now have both the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament was about an old covenant that God had caught with Israel. But the scriptures there, nonetheless, spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that formed the basis of their discussion and conversation about him and his crucifixion. Because the Old Testament contained the prophecies of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of why he would come, and of his crucifixion and resurrection. After the Lord had ascended and the apostles continued with his ministry, more and more enlightenment came, and so they were able to document letters to the churches that were established in various localities. And as a result of that, the letters they sent to these communities were compiled along with the Gospels that were written to explain why Jesus Christ came, what he did, and so on and so forth. All of these were bunched together through a set of yardsticks, and we have today the New Testament. The New Testament is an explanation of the Old Testament. It explains to us what the New Testament saints are all about and how they're supposed to live. It is markedly different from the Old Testament. However, it explains a lot of things in the Old Testament that we would never have understood if we have just the Old Testament. So thank God for what the apostles did, what the prophets did and the teachers of old did, because now we have a complete document to help us to live the life that God wants us to live. So we continue in this broadcast with what we're looking at in Acts chapter 6 verse 1a, which is now in those days when the disciples was multiplying. In those days, that one message that produced true disciples in multiplying proportions addressed one crucial issue in the hearer. That issue was sin. It addressed their sinfulness. It addressed the fact that they were living sinfully. 
Unlike today, where we are addressing money, we are addressing houses, we are addressing jobs, we are addressing so many things. But that one message addressed one key issue, and that was sin in the life of the hearers. If our preaching does not address the issue of sinfulness of man, we have no message. Because it is the starting point for the message of salvation. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Indeed, if you go up from Romans chapter 3 verse 23, if you go up to verse 10, the Bible says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps or snakes is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All men fall into this category. All men, women, children, anybody born of a man and a woman, they fall into this category. All have sinned. There is none that is righteous. We were born into sin because Adam and Eve sinned when they rebelled against God in the garden. And so the genes of sin continues to flow through every human being that is born. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. You are a sinner. And so they had to preach a message that made it clear to people that they were sinners. Now I want us to note something. That up to chapter 6 of the book of Acts of the Apostles, the gospel was being preached only to Jews. And I want you to understand that these were people who claimed that they were serving God. Yet, the issue of sin had not been addressed in their lives. And so it became important for the apostles to address that issue, to call that issue out in their lives. For them to understand that the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. That sin was merely covered for a year. And then the following year, they have to do an atonement again. But that when Jesus Christ came, and went to the cross. He dealt with sin once and for all. That was the message. It was a message that made the people to weep. It was a message that touched them at the very heart. This was why the Lord Jesus Christ came. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to make men rich. He did not come to make men popular. He did not, he did not come to make men acceptable to this world. No! He came to deal with the issue of sin in man because that is the problem between man and God. The reason why many of us do not have that relationship with God is because of sin. The Bible says that God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. So what did God do? He brought the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the price of sin for man so that man can now have access to God as a result of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. There is no man on his own that has access to God. But through the finished work of Christ on the cross at Calvary, we have access. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, when the Holy Spirit was speaking 
to Joseph, the foster father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to him, and she, that is Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save the people from their sins. Jesus means savior or salvation. It's the same meaning as Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew. Jesus is the Greek. So it means salvation. So he's saying his, his role in those days, when they named children, they named children functionally. They didn't just throw names anyhow. They named the children in a functional manner. When you saw a name, you looked at the meaning of the name and you understood the function that this child was prophesied, as it were, to come to the earth to fulfill. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, the B part, when the Pharisees were saying that Jesus was dining and whining with sinners, he made a profound statement. In Matthew chapter 9, the B part of 13, he said, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The message must be a message that calls sinners to repentance. And when we talk of sinners to repentance, that's everybody. All have sinned. All fall short. None is righteous. All of them, their throats are like open sepulcher. It's not about, I'm better than this. No, we are all sinners. And sin is sin. In Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 5 to 18 is rather lengthy, but let me read it. It says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that is the likeness of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That is, since we died, this is the spiritual truth. Since we died with him, when Christ died, we, because we are in Christ, what Christ did 2,000 years ago, once we come into him, we did it also 2,000 years ago. But it is just manifesting today. So when he died, we died with him. In the same way, when he resurrected, we also resurrected with him. To a newness of life. That is those who come to Christ. So in verse 6, it now says, Knowing this, that your old man, the old man is the old nature that delights to sin. If that nature has not been dealt with, there's nothing we are discussing here. You will continue to sin. You can go to church. But if that nature has not been dealt with, you will continue to sin. So he's saying, knowing this, that your old man was crucified with him because we were in Christ when he died. But now we are born and now we are born again. That thing that Christ did begins to manifest. So having been crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He's saying, when Christ died, we also died. And when Christ resurrected, we resurrected. Christ died to sin, we died to sin. Christ resurrected to a newness of life, we are resurrected to a newness of life. Never to serve sin again. So he's saying that what Christ did was a total and complete thing. We have no business struggling with sin, even though we do as human beings. But we really have no business doing that if we understood the reality of what Christ has done. In verse 7 it says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. You don't see a corpse delighting in anything. If you put a corpse naked, that's where the corpse will be. It's not ashamed of anything. It doesn't cover up anything. The corpse just lies down there. Because we are dead to sin, sin has no dominion over us. That's basically what it's saying. When you are dead to something, nothing moves you on that thing. 
So in verse 8 it says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, in the same way, similarly, you also reckon, consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have to understand this, that when Christ died, he died to sin. You also, in the same way, consider that because you are now in Christ, you also died to sin. And now you are alive to serve God and God alone, no longer serving sin. So the issue being discussed here is the issue of sin in man. Any message that is not addressing that is a wasted message. That is why we see a lot of madness, let me use that expression, a lot of spiritual madness around today because people are not following the truth that is in the word of God. They are following some teaching that has no basis in scripture, in the pursuit of wealth, in the pursuit of gain, in the pursuit of possessions, things that have no bearing, that will have nothing for you in eternity. People die on a daily basis. And I would like you to do an exercise for me. Go to funerals and find out whether the people who died know what they are putting on. Whether they take any of the things that they acquired on the earth with them when they die. Likewise, verse 11 again. You also reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts or desires. Sin wants you to live in a particular manner. But Christ has died for you. So you have no business living like that. That's what he's saying. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to righteousness. In verse 13, he says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What he's saying is, from now on you begin to live righteously. We are talking here about people who are born again. But for them to be born again, this issue of sin had to be addressed. And he said, if you are born again indeed, sin has no business in your life. For sin shall not have dominion over you, verse 14 now. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. You see, the message of grace that people have been preaching, that would suggest that you can sin because there is grace, is defeated by the scriptures. That message is not from God. The message of grace, if you go and read Titus chapter 2, from I think verse 11 to 13, it makes it absolutely clear that the grace of God that has appeared to all men, it teaches us certain things that denying unrighteousness and worldliness, denying, doing away with it, we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world looking forward to the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what grace teaches. Grace can never teach you to sin. It can never encourage you to live a life of sin. And that's what he's saying here. In verse 16 he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death 
or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you were set free when Christ came. If you have been set free from sin, what are you still doing living in sin? This is the issue. And this is what the gospel is teaching. This is what the gospel message was addressing when the apostles were preaching. They called sin out in these people. In Romans chapter 8, from verse 1 to 3, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If it had stopped there, would have said, okay, maybe everybody. But it says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The flesh here represents that old man, that sin-loving nature in us. I believe I explained this before. A goat loves to eat grass. So the nature of goats is to eat grass. If you take a goat to church and you tell the goat never to eat grass because grass is bad for it, but that instead you should eat fodder that is put in the barn, you are wasting your time. You can take the goat to church and say, stop foraging. There's grass in the compound. Come and eat grass. The goat will still go out to forage because it is in his nature to forage. Sheep will only stay where the shepherds stay, but goats will always go around. For you to change that goat and make the goat to act like a sheep, you must change the nature of the goat and put the nature of a sheep in the goat. Now, with that understanding, that's what he's saying here. That those who are in Christ, whose nature have been changed to yield to the Spirit of God, there's no condemnation for them. But those whose nature is still being led by the flesh, by the old sinful nature, there's condemnation. In verse 2 it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Sin which leads to death is like a criminal looking for whom he can kidnap and turn into a slave and do whatever it wants to do through that person. So he wants to kill somebody, you say, you go and kill this person. And the fellow, because the fellow is under sin, the fellow will kill. He wants to get high, he will say, you go and smoke this weed so that I can be high. And the person will go and do that. Even though that person is in Christ, because the flesh is still there, its desire is to sin. But when that man has yielded to Christ, there is a superior power that pushes out sin. And that is the law of the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit now comes and kicks out sin from your life. So when a man is born again, God will send forth the spirit of God into our hearts. And one of the very first things he does is to boot out sin. And that nature that lost to sin, it kicks it out. However, don't forget that the pattern of living has not changed. So the gospel comes to address that pattern of living so that it can change. So even though the old man died when we died with Christ, the impression of that old man is still there. If you leave a cabinet on a carpet for quite some time and you moved that cabinet, let's say after a number of years, the cabinet would create an impression. So even though you have removed the cabinet, the impression of the cabinet is still there, depressing the carpet. So what you need to do is to get the carpet cleaner that will run over that place and bring the entire carpet surface to the same level. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The first thing he does is to remove the cabinet. And then he now begins to run over that face. And that's what he's saying here. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, he comes to remove sin and the death that is going to cause. In verse 3 now says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, no matter how much we hear, thou shalt not commit this, thou shalt not commit that. The flesh cannot stop. The flesh is already in cahoot with sin. So even though you know that you shouldn't do something, you will discover that that's what the thing you want to do. Why? Because sin using the flesh will begin to push you to do what you're not supposed to do. And we end up doing that thing. But when Christ came and we say we have gone to Christ, that nature is removed the impression or depression that sin had put in that place is also cleared out. So you are a new creation. It says, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ came to deal with sin. Christ did not come to make you rich. No, that's not why he came. If you are rich, fantastic, I, I rejoice with you. If you have a big house or mansions, I rejoice with you. But that is not the purpose. The essence of his coming was to deal with sin and make man able to have relationship with God again. If we don't call people out on their sinfulness, they cannot truly repent of sin. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians on account of a young man who was living a contrary life. And this is what he said after he got the report of what had taken place as a result of the letter he had written. This is what Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 8. He says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it at that time. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you were sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you? What clearing of yourselves? What indignation with what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So he's saying, when I wrote this letter, I felt I was being hard on you. But when I heard the result, I was happy. Not just because you were sorry, but because you sorrowed in a godly manner. And that godly sorrowing led to repentance. And we are going to discuss that. So the essence of the gospel is to bring men to repentance is to make men to see sin and be ashamed and sorry for their sin in a godly sort, not a regret. It talks about a repentance that is never to be repented of, where that repentance does not lead you to now go and backslide, but a true, genuine repentance. That is the essence of the gospel. That one message of Jesus Christ and him crucified must address sin, must point to sin. If I am not aware that I have sinned, or that I'm a sinner, then what am I asking God forgiveness for? There must be a reason for which I'm asking forgiveness. Am I going to God because I want to have a car? Is that why I'm going to God? Am I going to God because I want a house? Because I want a job? Because I want employment? I hear people preach. 
And at the end of the message, they say so many things about how you can get money, how you can get a house, how you can get those things. At the end of the day, you hear them make a call and say, if you want God to give you a house, if you want God to give you money, if you want God to employ you, if you want God to make your way, your, your path straight, please come and give your life to Christ. Why would you not go? You would go. <laughs> because, I mean, quite frankly, every sinner wants money. Every sinner wants a house. Every sinner wants something. But when they have addressed the issue of sin, you will discover that those things don't mean anything. The Lord Jesus Christ said, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet he loses his soul? Imagine asking someone to apologize for something that he does not believe or does not accept that he has done wrong. That's what many people are saying. They say, oh, just, just come and give your life. Just come and... No! That man must understand that he has sinned, that he is a sinner. This is where the issue of conviction, convincing comes in. Let me read John chapter 16, verse 7 to verse 9. John 16, verse 7 to verse 9. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me the sin of the unbeliever is because they do not believe in christ and so he will convict them he will convince and convict them to convince someone is to win him over by an argument that cannot be refuted by any other evidence you must present the evidence in such a way that it defeats every other argument that that fellow might have. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to preach the gospel as best as we can. The job of the Holy Spirit is to now use that word to convince and convict that person. It may not happen in one day. Usually, if you preach a message to somebody, sometimes it takes time, sometimes years, where the Spirit of God is convicting that fellow convincing him, convicting him. One of the crucial things when we talk of conviction and convincing is there must be shame for sin. If the man is not ashamed of his sin, you haven't convinced him yet. The first thing is that he will be ashamed that, what? You mean I did these things? You mean I'm actually doing such crazy things? Now you are beginning to see the impact. I listened to a pastor. He said they have been going to church. But one day, in a hotel room, I don't know what it was in the hotel room, the presence of God came mightily upon him. And for the first time in his life, he realized that he was a sinner. And he was ashamed of his sinfulness. If you have not reached that place of shame for sin, you are not yet convinced. And if you are not convinced, you have not started. That is the simple truth. Let's be honest with ourselves. What many of us call salvation is a joke. The reality is, the message of salvation must bring you to the realization that you are a sinner. You see, that shame for sin will bring you to the place where you agree that you are a sinner. If you don't agree that you are a sinner, what are you confessing of? What are you telling God, I'm sorry for? What are you asking God to forgive you of? Not only do you agree that you are a sinner, not only are you ashamed of your sinfulness, and that uh, do you agree that you are a sinner, you must also now, Come to the place where you accept that the only way out for me is to have somebody that will bring me out of sin, that is a savior. And that Jesus is that savior. That is how it works out.
So the message of Jesus and him crucified that is addressing sin in man brings man to the place of being ashamed of his sinfulness. Brings man to the place of accepting that he's a sinner. Brings man to the place of saying, oh, I need a savior. Like Paul wrote once, I think in Romans chapter 7, he said, who will deliver me from this body of sin? What a miserable man I am. I said, but thank God, Jesus Christ has done it. So in looking for a savior, you are now told that that savior is Jesus. That man has been convicted. He is convinced. Let me put it a, a different way. When a criminal goes before a judge, by the time the trial goes through with all the evidence, preponderance, evidence, everything, the judge says, this man, you are convicted. But the man may not be convinced that he did it. So in the course of reading the sentence, the judge will now make certain notes. Those notes that the judge is making should bring shame to the man and convince him unless he's a hardened criminal. If he's not a hardened criminal, he will begin to see his mistakes. And such a man, you will see what Paul was writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You will see the kind of change that will take place in his life. The kind of sorrow and the kind of grief. When he's reading a statement in the court, pleading for mercy. He's not just reading something, pleading for mercy. He knows that he should receive this sentence. I really am truly sorry. I didn't understand what I was doing at the time. You will see penitence, which is what is lacking today. Today, people go before the altar smiling, chewing gum. We need to preach the gospel in a manner that makes people to be convicted and convinced that they are sinners. Because this conviction and convincing is what will give rise naturally to confession. Once I accept these things, confession, nobody needs to force me. Nobody needs to even tell me, say this after me. No, you know what you want to say. You recall, I think it's in Luke chapter 18, the publican who went to the temple. The Bible says that the publican went, he said he could not as much as lift up his head. He just said, be merciful to me, a sinner. What else do you want to say? You don't need to have a verbose thing. You are still ashamed of your sin. You are still under conviction. How many things do you want to say? Oh Lord, I'm a sinner. I didn't know that these things I was doing, that I was actually doing such horrible things against you. Let me say this to you now. Sin is a transgression against God. That's something that David said, I think, in Psalm 51 or so. He said, against you and you alone have I sinned. It's not against men. It's against God. The consequence may affect men, but the true thing is that it's against God. So you come to a point where you realize it. David got to the point where he realized it. Initially, he didn't realize it. He continued to live normal life. Until Nathan came and told that parable. And through that parable, he brought shame to him. He convicted and convinced him of his sin. And then he repented. And that repentance was genuine. Today we question whether our repentance is genuine. Because there's no conviction. Once there's that conviction and that convincing, confession is natural. What is confession? Confession is that admittance. Uncoerced admittance. A voluntary admittance resulting from my conviction that I am indeed a sinner who needs a savior and that Jesus is that savior. All I'm now doing is I'm saying it. I'm declaring it. That's what confession is. In Romans chapter 10, let me read from verse 6. It says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. 
or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. There's no need to be looking for Christ or to be looking for this confession anywhere. Look at what it says in verse 8. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. It's there. That is the word of faith which we preach. This is what they were preaching. What you need to do is right there in front of you. Don't ask Don't ask whether I need to go to Jerusalem to do this or I need to go to Kutuwenji to do this or I need to go to Australia to do it. No, it's right there at your door. In verse 9 it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The raising up of Jesus Christ, Jesus and him crucified and his resurrection is about your salvation. That's what he's saying there. Once you believe it, you will say it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. So what is happening is that your faith is what you are now declaring. And that declaration of faith is what is called your confession of faith. It's not coerced. It's something that is the result of a conviction in your heart. You know that this is what it is. And so you are saying it. There's no hypocrisy in that. There's no craft or cunningness in that. Your mouth and your heart agree. And so you say it. You are not saying what your heart does not agree or believe. Many people go to the front of the altar and make statements that they don't even believe or agree with in their hearts. Just because somebody said, say this after me, so that you can be rich, and then you repeat it. The next day, they see you smoking. They see you drinking. They see you doing all kinds of crazy things. And you say, well, I'm just trying. You know, it's small, 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 small. It's not small, small. Once that change takes place, it takes place. And we're going to discuss that pretty soon before we round up. In verse 10, it says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I believe in my heart that my righteousness is of God, that on my own I'm a sinner. It is Christ that can change me. It's Christ that can make me righteous. So I believe it. And so with my mouth, I make the, as I make that declaration, what am I doing? My salvation is coming through. In verse 11, it says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Yes, I was ashamed of my sin. But now that I've believed in him, the shame has been taken away by what Christ has done. I must be ashamed of my sin. And then Christ will come and wipe away and take away that sin. I must accept him as not just my savior, but my Lord. That is my confession. When you say somebody is your Lord, you are saying that whatever that person says, you will believe. Whatever that person says, you will do. You never argue with a Lord. So we have a lot of people who are arguing with the Lord, including pastors. This is why we need to go back to basics. We need to go back to the elementaries and ask ourselves, how did we get to the place where we can be disputing with the Lord? How did we get to that place? Nobody disputes with the Lord. What the Lord says is final. Don't argue. A Lord may make a statement that looks like a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Today I hear people say all kinds of things. Oh, it's not. there's no law. There's no this. God does not ask us to be lawless. What he's saying is that the way he walks in us is that we will do as his spirit is asking us to do. And in doing what the spirit of God is asking us to do, we are fulfilling the law. The Lord Jesus Christ made it clear in Matthew chapter 5. I believe from verse 17 or so to verse 20. 
He said, don't think that I came to abrogate the law. No, I came to fulfill it. The Lord does not remove the law. He asks us to fulfill it. Thou shalt not kill is still thou shalt not kill. If anything was removed and wasn't really removed, it was replaced. It was Christ who replaced it. And what are those things? The ordinances of killing of goats and sheep and so on and so forth. So let's not be confused and say that the law was removed. It was never removed. The law remains the standard. But none of us can attain to that standard of the law on our own. So we need the Lord Jesus Christ who already attained to that standard to be able to attain to that standard. It is in Christ and through him that we measure up to the standard of the law. It is our confession. Now, our conviction, coupled with our confession, is what creates the conversion. If you are not convinced, you cannot confess. But your conviction, coupled with your confession, you will be converted. What is a conversion? A conversion simply means, in this context, a radical change. That makes us to yield to the Spirit of God so that the Spirit of God changes us. So when you see somebody who has gone through this process of conviction and confession, he is a changed man. That was what happened to Paul, Saul of Tarsus. His change was so radical. People did not understand. The moment his eyes were opened and he ate, he entered into the temple and began to dispute that this Jesus is the Christ. This was a man that took letters from Jerusalem to go and arrest Christians. Suddenly, he begins to preach the same Christ for which he came to arrest people. That was a radical change. There was a conviction in him, a confession, and now a conversion. In Romans chapter 12, let me just read verse 2. It says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The mind is renewed. Once you are born again, the next thing is to get the mind renewed. Everything you had believed hitherto must be flushed out. And the word of God is put in there. You are no longer to mold your life the way the world is molding its life. Everything that the world says cannot be agreeable to you. That is why there is an error in preachers Picking examples from the world to teach. I can understand trying to make, because there's nothing in the world that can exactly tell us about spiritual things, but we can understand some things. However, to quote worldly people as the basis for Christianity, something is wrong somewhere. If we cannot be content with what the word of God says, then there's a problem. I see people trying to say that, well, scientists have proven this. Science can never prove the word of God. The word of God is its own proof. The word of God proves itself. If you study the word of God enough, you will see, the Bible says where two or three witnesses are, every word is established. You will see two or three proofs of every statement in the scriptures itself. It is such a process of conviction, confession, conversion that produced enduring souls in the kingdom who became disciples. Today, somebody goes to church, you will be begging him to come back to church. Why are you begging him? If he was an enduring soul, nobody begs him. He will come on his own. He will desire it. These enduring souls, they are truly repentant of their sin. They, they've seen sin. What? This is, this is dangerous. Let me tell you something. If you have not seen sin, for what sin is? A deadly disease. I doubt that you have been convinced and convicted of sin. As long as you can still make an excuse for sin, you are not convinced yet. You are not convicted yet. And I doubt that you are born again. Your sin remains. But when as a result of hearing the message, 
about Christ and why he came. He suffered and died for you so that your sins can be taken away. And you can still say, I don't have sin. Meanwhile, you're living in sin. People are in the choir, sleeping around. Just because they have a voice that they sing and the place seems to be shaking. Those are just emotional things. That's not spiritual. I hear people say, I feel the anointing. What do you mean by you feel the anointing? The anointing is either there or not. You don't feel it. People, when, when the word of God that produces enduring souls in the kingdom, when it comes, you will see people who are truly repentant. You will see people who hate sin and sinful living. I've seen people who were prostitutes when we preached to them and they received Christ. The first thing they were looking for was how to get out of the brothel. And even though they stayed in the brothel for maybe a week or two, they did nothing of that sort. When nighttime came, they packed their clothes and went away. When it was time to sleep, they just came there, they slept until they had enough. Somehow God helped them and they walked out of that place, never looked back again. And they are living right today. But we see people. They may not be in brothels, but they are worse than prostitutes. We see men. They may not be armed robbers, but they are worse than armed robbers. This kind of change produces hunger for the new way of living. The person wants to know, how do I live this new life in an effective manner? Where that hunger is missing, we must query the process that brought that man about, that brought that fellow to Christ. Today, we don't see that hunger. The conviction is not there. If the conviction process is faulty, everything down the line is faulty. That's why we must go back to basics and revisit this issue of conviction leading to confession and conversion. The desire to be taught the word of God. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he said, like newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word of God that you may grow thereby. Have you seen newborn children? Even when their eyes are not yet open, they long for the mother's breast milk. I remember a nephew we had many years ago when he was a little tot. One day we played a trick on him. We gave him milk in a bottle. The way he threw that bottle, I mean, we're talking of somebody barely one or two months. The way he threw that bottle away, he cried and cried until the mother's breast came. And then he lashed onto it and was like saying, what did you think you were doing giving me that rubbish? Come on, give, give me what I'm supposed to take. That is the kind of thing we are talking about. You cannot have gone through that conviction and be happy with the empty things that is being taught in many churches today. You want the word of God. You hunger for it. You desire it. And that is how you grow. If what you are eating is not the word of God, if what you are eating is the words of men, you may think you are growing, but you are not. Maybe you have not seen people who have kwashoko. The stomach is big, but the rest of the body is skin and bone. They have distended stomachs, yet they are starving. There are a lot of kwashokod Christians in churches because of the kind of food they are eating. You need to start feeding yourself on the word of God. The Bible says the sincere because he understands that there is the insincere. You must desire the sincere milk of the word. That's how you will grow. Those who have gone through this process, they will throw out anything that is not sincere, the sincere word of God. Push it out of their mouths. I don't want this. Like that little nephew of mine did. And when this thing takes place, something in you will say, I just want to please God. In everything I do, I just want to please God. 
if you have not reached that place, brother, my sister, you need to revisit how you came to the Lord. It was this kind of message that produced Stephen. Let's see a few of these people very quickly. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, look at the testimony they said of Stephen. The Bible says, and the same pleased them, the whole assembly, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, it says, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. It was this message that produced people like this. Stephen went on in chapter 7 to tell the people about God. He says, God does not dwell in temples made by hands. God dwells in hearts. He looked at the people and said to them, You uncircumcising heart and ear, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers do, so do ye. They gnashed at them and said, Oh, we must kill this fellow. And when they even began to stone him, Stephen looked up and said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Can you imagine today that kind of thing happened? Everybody will be screaming. Oh no, why would they do that? I don't know what we are pursuing. When you are truly convinced of the word of God, you will want to follow what Christ has said. Not what anybody is saying. Not what some fleshly person is saying. It was this kind of message that produced Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. This Paul writing to me says, And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood, this young man had been fed with the word. In Acts chapter 16, verse 1 to 3, still about Timothy. He says, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed that his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. What a disciple. He was willing to be circumcised. He didn't have to. But he understood that for the sake of certain things, I need to do this. Nobody demanded it of him. But he knew he, did, he had to do it so that talk will cease. What of Onesimus? Onesimus was a slave. You find that in Philemon chapter 1 verse 10. Philemon is just one chapter. Verse 10. I just read a few portions from verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, my son. Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him that is my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion as it were, but voluntary. Now, what is happening here is that Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. And for some reason, Paul met him in prison, I think, in Rome. And preached to him. And he became born again. And he ministered to Paul while Paul was in prison. When Onesimus' release had come, Paul now sent him with a letter to Philemon. Onesimus took the letter along with Timothy and went to Philemon with the slave. Some other person would say, never, I'm not going back to that house again. He had been touched. He had been radically changed. He went. And what a testimony that Paul had written concerning him. Brethren, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ must address the sin in us. If he does not address sin in us with a view to killing it in our lives, then 
what we have is mere tale. It's a fable. It's not going to produce men and women who can be true disciples. It won't produce it. It will produce some wishy-washy fellow who will shout, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But when troubles come, he will vanish. When challenges come, he will be screaming on the top of his lungs. If you were kidnapped today, would you be a testimony for Jesus in that place? That's the question you should be asking yourself. What is your conviction concerning Christ? What is your confession about Christ? And have you been converted? The Lord said, except you become like little children and you are converted, you cannot be my disciple. I plead with you. Let's go back to the old path. That old time religion was good enough for Paul and Silas in the prison. That was good enough for Peter. That was good enough for the apostles and disciples of old. Good enough for Stephen, even though he was being stoned. He could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Until we meet again, God bless you and goodbye.